Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do tell your friends, family and colleagues about the show. It makes a big difference indeed and is very much appreciated. Today we are talking with Shane Ryan, Global Executive Director of the Avast Foundation. And many of you who use a computer day in and day out will recognize the Avast brand. They are one of the world's leading providers of antivirus software. We're going to be talking with Shane about equity and inclusion within the digital space. And to kick things off, let me share a sobering statistic for you. According to the United Nations, nearly 3 billion people, or 37% of the global population, have never been online despite a rise in use during the pandemic. And here's another stat for you. 96% of those people, those 3 billion people who've never been online, live in the developing world. Today's conversation is well-rounded and will span equity and inclusion within the digital space, trust-based philanthropy, inclusive co-design, and much more. Shane himself has overcome much adversity during his childhood, having been in care and coming from humble beginnings in West London, and subsequently succeeding in a career that saw him become Deputy Director of the National Lottery Community Fund here in the UK, and today Global Executive Director of the Avast Foundation, an international endeavor. His experience in equity, inclusion, grant-making, and philanthropy provide him with a unique vantage point from which to shed light on the importance of equity and inclusive digital futures trust-based philanthropy, and inclusive co-design. And inclusive co-design being a thread that is constant throughout Shane's career. He has always been passionate about ensuring that everyone has a voice. Without further ado, Shane, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Alberto, thanks for having me. We're glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about the Avast Foundation. What's it all about? Well, firstly, the Avast Foundation uh, is part of a long, long line uh, of philanthropy uh, that Avast have engaged in over a number of years, which is one of the reasons I came. So where we're at now and with this new iteration, which is quite exciting, is about equity and inclusive digital futures. You know, so the organization itself fundamentally is trying to ensure that everybody, no matter where you are in the world, has the tools and skills to navigate their own digital world and to use that as well as they possibly can. So if you look at where we stand currently, I think there are more than 2 billion people uh, who don't have the digital access that you and I have uh, today, which is still shocking because there's so much that can enrich our lives just through being online. So first and foremost, as an organization, what we try to do is we try to talk about this issue. We also We grant making the space. So we have a number of other like-minded individuals and organizations around the world that are interested in ensuring there's there's some kind of digital equity and parity in our world and ensuring that those more than 2 billion people uh, have access to that. The other thing that I think is quite important is working with NGOs, working with um, government departments uh, and others to ensure that this is a collaborative mission. You know, so it isn't something that we're trying to do in a silo. It's something that we're all working together to try and achieve and and through that formulate some kind of measurable goals. 
So Avast was founded in the Czech Republic, but the foundation has its origins in the Netherlands. And Shane, if I'm not mistaken, you're based here in the UK right now. Yeah. Give us a little bit of a narrative for where you came from and your experience in this space. I, I think my route's non-traditional, which is probably why I've taken the route I have. I mean, first and foremost, I grew up in West London. And I think that what guided me towards this work in the first place was the fact that I was, I, I grew up in care, you know, my adolescence was spent in care. And I went to school with, uh, I think I was quite an odd child. And I went to school with, with a number of individuals I was in care with. And I think that because many of the people I grew up with were quite vulnerable, they, I mean, along with myself, struggled in school. You know, we struggled to get along with others. Uh, bullying uh, was a big issue in school. And so as the, the, the kind of the biggest, but also the one with the largest mouth, I found myself advocating for those around me that I, I was growing up with. The kids that other people felt were, were, were the weedy kid in the corner, I, I live with that kid. So we live in the same place. And so uh, when I left care, obviously that's all I knew. And I ended up working within the care system, working with other people who'd been through what I'd been through. So that was one of my first jobs working in the care system. Um, with young people who, who were struggling and, and, uh, and experiencing some of the same things that I'd experienced when I was younger. Since then, I've now worked across all sectors. So, so I've worked in the public and private uh, and voluntary sector, as we call it in the UK. I've worked with government. Uh, I've worked with a number of charities. And now I'm working <laughs> effectively for corporate. But I, I feel as though the, the, the common thread through all of that work has been advocating for other people and trying to find spaces in which we can afford people the platform that they need to change their own lives. So I'll go back a bit. A while ago now, I was the CEO of an organization called now called Future Men. And most of my work there was working with young fathers. We had fathers as young as 14 years old. And I've been a young father myself, so I completely related to that but also young men who've been excluded from school. I've been excluded from school, completely relate to that. You know? and, and so my role in there was just to look at the way those individuals were treated, you know, the way young men are treated in those environments, the way we treat young men in educational settings. And, and that's obviously something I still care about today. And the other side of that is what it is to be male and what it is to be masculine in the 21st century. And they're all still issues I still care about to this day. On the fatherhood issue, one of the, the most important things about that that I, I myself learned as a, as a young father was many of the young people I worked with had been in situations to date where they had been a runaway or they'd been in some kind of contact with the criminal justice system or they'd been excluded from school. And becoming a parent, while a major issue for others and something that would hurt them uh, in the longer term, for them was an opportunity to be something else. And there, there is nothing like looking into a young person's face, like a young guy's face and saying to him, okay, what, what kind of a father do you want to be? Put all of those things to one side. What kind of a dad do you want to be? And you can almost see them wiping the slate clean and thinking, I can do something else here. I can be something else. And I can be an important role model, potentially, to my child. So that work was really, really important to me. But it's no different from effectively what I'm doing now or anything in between. Um, I'll give you another example. So unfortunately, in 2017, there was a dreadful fire in the UK that happened in West London, Grenfell. So it's my patch where I grew up. 
because West London's always been my home. And without going into too much detail, one of the things that we managed to do, and I'm, I'm happy to still chair at the moment, I'm proud to chair, is we set up the Grenfell Young People's Fund, working alongside a, a number of other organisations at that point. And it's, it's, it's run effectively by young people. So young people make the decisions on the funding for their own community. And that's been a theme of my work uh, over a number of years. I love the idea of inclusive co-design and this idea of participatory scenario testing within that. So, so, and that comes up again and again in, in my work. So working at the lottery, same thing again. So it's uh, always looking for the lottery itself. Uh, and for those who, who don't know what the National Lottery Community Fund is, it's a non-departmental government body. Which you used to be heavily involved with. I was a deputy director uh, there. And one of the things that, that I think we were striving for was a, a lottery in which any organisation, wherever they were across the UK, felt as though if they were doing good work, they had an opportunity to be funded. And that's all you can ask. Not all organisations will be funded. I mean, it, it's around... Uh, 550 million pounds a year, um, which is not as much as you think it is. So there are obviously decisions to be made there. But every single, there should be this idea of equity and that every single organization should feel as though they could get funding in any given round. And so the work that we were doing there, particularly uh, during the pandemic, where lots of organizations really struggled. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I think the, the entire sector is around 52 billion in the UK. But most organizations have a turnover of under 100K. And they're the organizations, they're the grassroots organizations that are doing amazing work on the ground that, that, that often you don't hear about. But that tapestry that keep our communities together. And uh, after going out and looking at the work that was happening, reading some reports, we were finding out that many communities, particularly uh, black and minoritized communities, were closing. You know, they were doing great work, but were closing weekly because there was a distinct lack of funding in those regions. And so I won't, I won't go through the entire process of this uh, and talk about what we were doing there, but the upshot of it was we set up something at the time collectively working with a number of organizations around the country called the Phoenix Fund. And this is just to illustrate how the idea of inclusive co-design can work within a funding capacity. What we did there was we looked at the challenge and the challenge here was that when communities were looking at the lottery and, the, our, and our funding programs, they weren't seeing something they could apply for. They weren't seeing something that, that appealed to them or was accessible to them. And so what we decided to do was to redesign a program with the community involved in it. Fast forward, the first tranche of funding went out. We had a 72% increase from those communities, which was amazing. And when you speak to people that either got funded or didn't, you know, it was, it was a similar response, that it was built for them around them and with them involved. So they instantly felt ownership and involved in that space. And for me, that has got to be the future of what we do in philanthropy, which pulls me on to where I am now and the work I'm doing now. So, so effectively, where we are now is we're in this digital space. I would not say that I come into this uh, as a tech head. You know, I like, a, I like a gadget, but I don't come into this as a tech head. And I think that my non-traditional background is an advantage because my lens is slightly different when I'm looking at the work. And that's, that's definitely advantageous. But what you start to see is you start to see the potential as we move into the 21st century of a platform, a digital platform that doesn't have that sense of parity, that that sense of equity and equality isn't there, isn't quite there. 
So for me, the big question here is still the same as it was 20 years ago. How do we ensure that all voices are heard? Because when all voices are heard, we move forward. So I know that's a, that's a, that's a weird way of putting it, but I feel as though I am effectively still doing the same work I was doing a long time ago, just in a slightly different way and with, with different mediums. Absolutely. It's, uh, well, you have an incredibly rich set of experiences, but also lived experiences that weren't always easy, but they were learning experiences. How has your experience enabled you to come into this space now and help transform things? And what are the main challenges that you're seeing right now? Well, there's, as well as a massive issue with digital exclusion in, once again, in poorer communities, it's the same, I mean, so it's the same thing. Uh, the poorer the community, the less access you have to the internet, Gen Z or not. Our brief is global. So what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to look not just at what's happening in the UK, but also the similarities in relation to what's happening in the wider world. Now, my insights here mainly stem from our youth leadership board. So I can't say that they're mine, they're, they're the youth leadership board. So one of the first things that we did when I came into this role, and, um, and one of the great things about Avast too, because Avast was saying, yes, we really want to do this. And, and many, I know that many organizations would have said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. But Avast were very much saying, yes, we understand that in doing work with young people, we need to understand the needs, but we shouldn't be driving it. Young people should be driving it. So we have a youth leadership board uh, with a chair and members from all over the world. And they define clearly what we do in this space. Now, the insights that they give us tell us, and this is, this is more global, but pertinent to the UK also, that there's a, mental, there's a massive mental health issue here post-COVID with young people. I, th I think it's fair to say that there are still places in the world in which young people, particularly young activists, are using digital means to get out a message but also that digital means puts them in a situation where they are vulnerable in their own country. We have a massive self-image issue with young people uh, brought on by the internet. We are also in a situation where, I, I think you'll, you'll agree, young people can see everything that's going on everywhere else. So now, I mean, when you were young, if you were, if you were in a situation where you were poor, you didn't quite necessarily know how poor you were in relation to other people. Now that's obviously and instantly apparent. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis once you have access. So instead of, uh, and then once again, uh, words of our young people are not mine, but young people individually and collectively, unlike when I was much younger, they were in a situation where they were often competing with the person in school, you know, the other person in school, the coolest person in school, or the coolest person in the borough, and that kind of thing, or a cool guy you saw in your newspaper. What happens is, now, young men and women, and, and the young children as well, are always competing against the world online. So you judge yourself. And, and, and for me, potentially, and I'd love to do some more work around this, some of the mental health issues come from the fact that you are constantly competing with everybody. You're, you're always seeing people who can do things better than you can, who you think look better than you can, are more sporty than you are, you know, uh, smarter than you, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's all of this to contend with in these spaces that, that I, I didn't have growing up. You know, I, I wasn't measuring myself against people uh, across the planet. And so, and I wasn't being shown how great everybody was. And, 
and and because the internet in, invariably is a space in which everybody tries to show their best self, you know that issue is compounded somewhat, you know, and 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 one would say exaggerated. So I mean, there are there are many varied issues in relation to young people past access, you know, past getting people online. I mean, that's I mean, in terms of education, uh, more widely as we've seen during the pandemic, it's really important. That, that we get as many young people online as possible, but we also need to do it in a safe environment. And now the other side of, of that is, is where you have these many competing and varied priorities online, what you also have is, is individuals who would take advantage of the vulnerability of young people in those spaces. And so we have a duty as a community, um, and, and with the recent bill, we're much closer to that, but there's still a lot of work to do, to ensure that our young people, impressionable young people, have safe access to internet spaces. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of work to do. So there's tiers here. So you have, you have the internet safety, you've got the, the, the equity, but within that, you've also got an aspect where we're safeguarding young people that are at risk or currently experiencing mental health issues that are exacerbated often by what's going on online. What are the resources at your disposal and how you're leveraging these? So you have you have a company that's very well known in the digital space, antivirus. You have a certain set of skills, certain group of people, and here you are, you're a global presence. What exactly is it? How are you deploying these resources? And how do you cherry pick what fights to fight and where you can add most value? Yeah, I think that our efforts in that department, in terms of working out what we do, what we do and how we do it, are fairly nascent. And I say that because one of the things that we are mindful of is not running before we can walk or jumping into a space without... You, you can't say you're an organization that builds your work around communities without involving those communities in, the, in said work. So where we are currently is one of the biggest questions for us was, what does digital freedom mean? So I know what it means to me, you know, you know, the kind of more Western libertarian ideas of freedom. You know, I understand that concept. But what I have found is that when you talk about freedom, digital freedom, digital democracy uh, in the wider world, that automatically starts to change. You know, so people have different ideas of what that is, depending on where they are um, and the situations that they're in. So some of our work over the last year has been about understanding that. We have also recognized that we have over, over 2,000 people within Avast that are either engaged in pro-social activities at the moment or very interested in that space. And so we can galvanize and kind of harness that energy towards individual pieces of work. So we've been doing that during this period. Avast itself puts 1% of its profit towards the foundation. And so we've made grants. So so this isn't fundamentally about how we can change the world. It's how we can enable other organizations to take that work forward and acting as a, a trusted partner in that space. I think that, that as a 21st century funder and being involved in grant making in the 21st century, it, it's a responsibility, I think. It's more responsibility to not only talk about the way others should work, but to lead by example. So if you look at the work that we've done from the very beginning of the, of the foundation, much of it has been around, one, understanding communities, two, operating from a vantage point of inclusive co-design, 
ensuring that trust-based philanthropy sits at the heart of our work. So it isn't just about what we're doing, because you can you can make grants, you know. So you can you can do things, uh, you can get activity going. It's just as important to lead by example and show that it isn't just what you're doing, but an old cliche, but how you do it that's important. Involving communities in a way that inverts the pyramid. So if you look the the Spark Fund, we have a Spark Fund at the moment. Um, well, we've committed almost three million pounds to the Spark Fund. That's primarily about young people across the world who are involved in process of activity and activism, being able to continue doing that work because it's better for the planet. They're doing amazing work, be it around race, uh, be it around LGBTQ plus issues, be it around um, climate, whatever they're doing, they're doing great work. And so what we are doing is we're buttressing that work by allowing them to continue it online and continue into the future. So, so rather than us saying, hey, we are, we should be, we're doing this stuff, what we're trying to do is we're trying to ascertain where are the ripple points, where are the points in which we can throw a pebble in and, and those ripples will continue over the coming years. And I think in that instance, it's with young people. So that's, that's an example of that. But how we got there, which is equally important, was by working with young people and seeing what the needs were. So that's how we funded that work. So, so you're asking me about how do we d- d- decide on that? First, what you do is you have a collective group of young people from across the world that can read that the kind of almost world mood music um, and kind of take those overtures and lead them towards some kind of, of, of useful and robust funding mechanism. That's kind of how you do it for me. So, so it wasn't about us. It's about saying to young people, what are the big needs? And then as we hopefully come out of the COVID period that we've been in for this, for this last two years, what, what should we be doing now? And funding accordingly, you know, rather than, hey, bold banner, we are doing this, you know, or, or working. And, and there's a massive difference between uh, inclusive co-design and consultation. So we're not going out and just saying to young people, hey, what do you want us to do? And then we do it. What we're doing is we're designing these programs with young people side by side. So they have a stake in all of the work at every juncture. And I think that that's equally important. So people get mixed up often with that. They say, oh, well, we've spoken to those people over there. Um, and, and that's fine. It's interesting. And it's fine. Uh, but inclusive co-design isn't that. You know, so it's about that, that real parity, about that devolution of power, and about understanding the notion that, that communities have, have, have lived experience and expertise. We have our own expertise and funding. But they're equal. You know, it isn't, well, we've got money. And if you want it, you know, then you're going to have to do these things for it. You're going to have to jump through these hoops for it. That's not how it should work. Yeah, it starts with, because otherwise what you have is a, is, is a skewed relationship in those situations that automatically has you as the funder on top and the organization underneath. And if you start from that premise, then people start to act up into those roles organizations feel as though they're in a space where they have to give you whatever you're asking for because you've given them money. I mean, you feel as though you have to get these reports from organizations, you know, and you have to hold them to a definable set of metrics that you have decided on because you're the funder. So this kind of deconstructs those ideas. So what we've been trying to do over the last year is to, is to almost see those ideas. So this idea itself is not a new idea. and Working this way isn't a new way of working. But there are very few funders, particularly in a corporate space, that engage with others in this way. 
And that's why it isn't just for me about what we've been doing, so the outputs. So we have been making grants. You know, so the Spark Fund is an opportunity um, that we've taken to do that. But it's also about how we do it. Um, there's a, I hate going, getting, using too many big words, but I use the term mimetic isomorphism because that's, that's, that's what it is. You know, so mimetic isomorphism as opposed to coercive isomorphism. No one's forcing us to do this work. You know, but we think it's a really, really important space. But by doing it, the kind of mimetic aspect of that is, is the fact that others, we hope, will follow the work. You know, so others will see it and think, that's a good way of working. You know, a more regenerative and non-extractive way of working with communities, but also of working with organizations. So that's how we get here. And that's a work in progress. And I, and I think it right, rightly so. It should be a work in progress. Because what we're doing is we're building the way the foundation should work with the communities involved, rather than deciding on what the house looks like and inviting you over for dinner, which is a slightly different way of doing it. Mm. What prompted you guys to behave this way? The empathy and broader thought about the power dynamics that are at play. What prompted the Avast Foundation to take that approach? And I know you guys are fairly young and you yourself as the leader of this foundation came on board last year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Was this shaped by your arrival? Or was it already in motion prior to your arrival? I, I think it, it was a bit of both, really. I mean, I came here from National Washington Community Fund because I loved the approach that the organization were willing to take. As I say, they had a long history of philanthropy. Uh, and being here and meeting the founders, I feel it, you know, when I'm here. Through the organization, people want to do good things. If you look at the, the situation in Ukraine and the work that's been done around that by the organization, I'm so proud to be involved in it. But effectively, what happened was, I think that they wanted to do something radically different in, in the space. I think that, The digital space itself is quite unique in that it isn't like the rest of the sector. I mean, it doesn't have a hundred years of history. Uh, I, I, I was in Washington, D.C. with colleagues from a number of institutions that have been going for a considerable period of time. And the biggest issue they had there was not new ideas, but the cultural shift required to embed those new ideas, you know, so with those big institutions. And what I found that was refreshing at the past was this openness to new ideas and the boldness to create a foundation that wasn't self-serving, you know? So where they are happy for the reflexive benefit that they get from having the foundation and the good work that the foundation does, but they weren't using it as some kind of a marketing strategy or, you know, that, that kind of thing. It wasn't cause washing, you know, it wasn't that kind of an idea. It was, okay, this foundation will sit here and it will strive to try and change the world. That's the idea, and I've completely bought into that. In terms of my own work and what I bring to that space is inclusive co-design, as I was saying before, it's a golden thread that runs through everything I've ever done. And I've worked on both sides of this. So in the past, I have been a CEO of a charity. I have worked with, with funders who, when we've done evaluations and we're saying to them, well, what did you think of the last report that we gave you? I've said, we haven't read the last report and have openly admitted that often they don't read the reports. Now, that's about checks and balances. So, so it's about keeping you in check, and then more than anything else, you know? So it's about compliance, and not necessarily about longer-term social good, you know? So although that may come from it. So a lot of those ideas, and me watching those situations where often I, I was in a situation where I had to sing and dance for funders, 
you know, or I had to create something new for funders. So the work I was doing wasn't good enough. I had to innovate, you know. So even if you, you felt as though what you were doing was pretty innovative, you had to do something else. You know, they had to have more bells and whistles on. Uh, I know that might sound unfair, but many funders have been in that space where because they have that funding, they're almost saying, impress me with something slightly different. And so organizations spend a lot of time running around trying to placate funders. And I just I never agreed with that way of working. So when I was kind of, as they say, poacher turned gamekeeper and in another space where I was now doing it, one of the things that I vowed to do was not to do that for people, not to put people in that situation, to recognize that they were doing good work and that was good enough. If they were doing good work, my responsibility was to try to support that and look at how they might expand that, you know, uh, or how they might, how they might improve the quality of that, but not to, to, to the onus was, was on them to have that discussion with me about what we might do next. So those things I kind of bring to the work. So it wasn't, that's, that's, that's kind of the way I work. And I'm really thankful that Avast is an organization that were open to that, to working in that way, because lots of organizations aren't, you know, they, they have a culture. And it's very much them and us between kind of grantor, grantee, and it's, 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 that's how they work. And, and if you want money from us, you better tap dance. And, uh, and, uh, and that really wasn't uh, how I wanted to work. So we've been able to, I've been able to marry some of the ideas, um, this, this idea of digital freedom, and really start thinking about what that looks like in a 21st century context, you know, with some of the things I've done in the past. And so once again, you're just taking you're taking elements of work you've done before and looking at how they fit in the digital space. So, and so what is that? How does that work? So, and that's, that's the question I've been asking. So what does this foundation look like in the 21st century context? Because we know some of the work we've done before doesn't work. We know some of these ideas that we've had don't work. We know that if we don't work with communities or we have in some cases, we've had a more colonial of working with people, you know, it doesn't necessarily work. How do we ensure using the digital tools we have now these things don't happen again. And so that's why, I mean, it was a, a great marriage between me uh, and the organization because I think that particularly Audrey Valchek, who's the, the, the CEO, wanted to do something radically different in the space. And so do I. And now where I'm at is ensuring, one, that we do it well, two, that we include all voices in that conversation, and three, that we start to codify what that future should look like. You know, so... In a corporate perspective, corporate philanthropy, what should that look like in the future? Uh, and that's that's kind of how we get here. So it's a, I suppose it's a long way of saying it's a mixture of both. Absolutely. Now, the digital space evolves so quickly. And so while I might usually ask you a question about what success looks like to you for 2030, or, you know, I can't think that far ahead. But if we're having a chat in two years time, any idea how things might have progressed in your journey with the Avast Foundation? I think if any other entities in our space, any other organizations in, in our space have decided that they're going to be strive to be non-extractive and more regenerative in the way they work with communities to adopt ideas like trust-based philanthropy and inclusive co-design in their work, then I'd be really happy. I'm hoping for that. I also hope that we've been able to model by that point what 21st century philanthropy within a digital context should look like. Because I think we're quite far away from that. But that, for me, is the, the, the biggest goal. You know, what should that be? In order for a better future for all of us, because we know what's happened in the 21st century and then how that's been and then what's happened in those spaces, 
from, from kind of individual grant making right the way through to, to international development. And it hasn't, it's been patchy. It hasn't been great. And, and throwing money at things doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So how do we work differently to ensure that the outcomes are good across the board for everyone? Uh, and so I think beginning to model some of that, you know, and coming up with some kind of a taxonomy around that, for me, is the future. So that's one of the good things we do because everyone can make grants, right? So, and we will continue to make grants. But outside of that, for me, the wider efficacy of those grants will be established when we can say, okay, we have a route here that allows everyone into these spaces. So we have this diversity of thought that allows us collectively as communities to be better in the future. Mm. Final key takeaway for our audience. What's that key thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? What I noticed during uh, my own lockdown and, and during that summer, George Floyd and, and everything else that was happening coming out of that was that we have an opportunity now. We had a, this, this kind of reflective moment in our, in our collective lives and we have an opportunity to, to do things differently. And I would say to people more generally, not to go back to what we were doing before, you know, so in the way we were living before, what we're seeing with events in the wider world at the moment is what happens somewhere else always affects you know so and that we know that we see that from the pandemic we see that from, from from the wars that are happening around the world and the way they affect our economies and our livelihoods our day-to-day livelihoods so i would say that would be the take the kind of takeaway for me let's let's work differently let's do something different we're in the 21st century let's act like it uh and then let's really try um and learn from the mistakes of the past excellent Shane, listen, thank you very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It's been really informative, and I wish you uh, continued success on this rather nascent journey uh, into the digital space. So thank you very much. It's been great. No, thank you. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Shane Ryan, Global Executive Director of the Avast Foundation. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And tell your friends, family, and colleagues about the show as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. For information about this episode and more than 150 interviews with remarkable thought leaders in the world of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please leave us a rating and a review if you enjoy this show. It helps other people to find us, and it's very much appreciated. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.